Welcome to The Churches the World, Chapter 2, Episode 14, the third of several parts concerning the Sumerians. Last week, I covered the early history of the Sumerians, touching on both the Ubaid and Uruk periods. If you missed it, you should really go back and give it a listen. Like most of these several-part episodes, there will be a little review of that episode interwoven with this one, but it shouldn't bore you and is necessary for the narrative. And also keep in mind that when things span several episodes, sometimes getting a good clean cutoff is next to impossible, as the history really does not unfold chronologically, but tends to be more sporadic. So just keep that in mind. This episode begins with the Sumerians and ends right when the Akkadians are showing up. As I covered in previous episodes, the Sumerians were indirectly mentioned in Genesis chapter 10 due to their association with the city of Uruk. More directly, the Akkadians were mentioned in the same chapter. Owing to this, it's probably a safe assumption that the chapter was written after the founding of these societies. And a little warning before I start. Unlike probably any other episode to date, this one is very dense, and I really do mean thick, with names and dates. Not like I intended for the podcast to be structured. But it's also necessary to provide a foundation for what comes next. The episode helps to provide some understanding for all of the areas mentioned in Genesis 10. But in order to partially compensate, the episode is a little shorter in length too. So let's get started. According to the Sumerian scholar Samuel Noah Kramer, the first ruler of Sumer, whose deeds are recorded, if only for the briefest kind of statement, is a king by the name of Etna of Kish, who may have come to the throne quite early in the 3rd millennium BC. In the king list, he is described as he who stabilized all the lands. The Sumerian king list is a cuneiform document written by a scribe of the city of Lagash sometime around 2100 BC which lists all of the kings of the region and their accomplishments in an attempt to show continuity of order in society dating back to the beginning of civilization. The Sumerian king list is thought to have been created to legitimize the reign of a king named Uta Hegel of Uruk, who ruled around 2100 BC, by showing him as the most recent in a long line of rulers of the region. Uta Hegel, it is thought, was trying to link himself to such earlier hero kings through the creation of the king list. But let's back up a bit. The early dynastic period is generally dated between about 2900 and 2350 BC. It began after a cultural break with the preceding Jadap Nasser period, which lasted from about 3100 to 2900 BC. The beginning date has been established via radiocarbon dating of artifacts. No inscriptions have been found verifying any names of kings that can be associated with the early dynastic period, so some would consider this time to be prehistory. Texts from later in the period have been found, but they are not yet understood. There were later inscriptions on tablets that bear the names of kings mentioned on the king list, and as I mentioned before, the king list was written much later than this period, close to 800 years later. The dynastic period begins about 2900 BC and includes such legendary figures as Enmerkar and Gilgamesh, who are supposed to have reigned shortly before the historic record opens about 2700 BC. I reference Gilgamesh in both the creation and flood episodes. What does it mean that the historic record opened? Well, simply, 
This is when the now-deciphered syllabic writing started to develop from the early pictograms. Around 2600 BC, a sub-period sometimes referred to as the Farah period began where syllabic writing was first recorded. Accounting records in an undeciphered logographic script existed before the Farah period, but the full flow of human speech was first recorded at this time. The center of Sumerian culture remained in southern Mesopotamia, even though rulers soon began expanding into neighboring areas, and neighboring Semitic groups adopted much of Sumerian culture for their own. After a flood occurred in Sumer, kingship is said to have resumed at Kish, with various city-states and their dynasties of kings temporarily gaining power over the others. The earliest dynastic name on the king list known from other legendary sources is Etna, whom it calls the shepherd who ascended to heaven and consolidated all the foreign countries. He was estimated to have lived around 2900 BC and is considered to be the 13th king of the first dynasty of Kish. Among the 11 kings who followed, a number of Semitic Akkadian names are recorded, suggesting that these people made up a sizable portion of the population of this northern city. The earliest monarch on the list, whose historical existence has been independently attested through archaeological evidence, is Enema Bargassi of Kish, who ruled around 2600 BC. He was said to have defeated Elam and built the temple of Enlil in Nippur. His name is also mentioned in the Gilgamesh epic. This mention is the basis for the suggestion that Gilgamesh himself might have been a historical king of Uruk. As the epic of Gilgamesh demonstrates, this period was associated with increased violence. Cities became walled and increased in size as undefended villages in southern Mesopotamia disappeared. In fact, Gilgamesh is credited with having built the walls of Uruk. Emma Bargassi's successor, Aga, is said to have fought with Gilgamesh of Uruk, the fifth king of that city. From this time, for a while, Uruk seems to have had some degree of power in Sumer. This illustrates a flaw in the Sumerian king list, as contemporaries are often placed in successive dynasties making reconstruction of a believable timeline difficult, but I'll give it my best shot. And I'll apologize in advance, as I'm sure I'll completely mess up most, if not all, of the name pronunciations. And this list jumps around, so it may be hard to follow, but it does lay a necessary groundwork for the periods to come. Keep in mind that during this time, Kish, Eric, Ur, and Lagash all vied for control of the region for hundreds of years, also rendering Sumer vulnerable to external conquerors. The dynasty of Lagash, though not included on the king list, is well documented through several important monuments and many archaeological finds. This dynasty is believed to have existed between about 2500 and 2270 BC. Although short-lived, one of the first empires known to history was that of Etna of Lagash, who annexed virtually all of Sumer, including Kish, Uruk, Ur, and Larsa, and reduced the city-state of Uma, the arch-rival of Lagash, to nothing more than a tributary. His kingdom extended to parts of Elam and along the Persian Gulf. He seems to have used terror and violence as a matter of policy. But his empire collapsed shortly after his death. I'll touch on this in a future episode when I cover the militaries of the era. Mashkayagasser is listed as the first king of Uruk. He was followed by Enmakar, the epic Imakar and the Lord of Arata tells of his voyage by river to Arata, a mountainous, mineral-rich country upstream from Sumer. He was followed by Lugal Banda, also known from fragmentary legends, 
and then by Dumazid, the fisherman. The most famous monarch of this dynasty was Dumazid's successor, Gilgamesh, hero of the Epic of Gilgamesh, where he is called Lugobanda's son. Ancient fragmentary copies of the Epic of Gilgamesh have been discovered in locations as far apart as Hattusas in Anatolia, Megiddo in Israel, and Tel el Amarna in Egypt. This is among the many reasons that this epic is considered the first work of literature in world history. The Ur dynasty is dated to the 26th century BC. Meshkalemdug is the first archaeological recorded king of the city of Ur. He was succeeded by his son, Akalemdug, and Alkamdug was succeeded by his son, Meshanapada. Meshanapada is the first king of Ur listed on the king list, and the list claims he defeated Lukalkildu of Uruk. He also seems to have conquered Kish, thereafter assuming the title King of Kish for himself. This title would be used by many kings of the preeminent dynasties from some time forward, as it seems to convey regional authority. King Meshalom of Kish is known from inscriptions from Lagash and Adab, stating that he built temples in those cities, where he seems to have had some influence. He is also mentioned in some of the earliest monuments from Lagash as refereeing a border dispute between Lugal Shal Inger, the high priest or governor of Lagash, and the man in a similar position at their main rival, the neighboring town of Uma. Meshalom's placement in time relative to the reign of Mesempada in Ur is uncertain, primarily due to the lack of any other names and inscriptions that mention him and his absence from the king list. The Anwan dynasty is dated to the 26th century BC. According to the Sumerian kingless Elam, Sumer's neighbor to the east, held the kingship in Sumer for a brief period based in the city of Awan. Elam is mentioned in Genesis chapter 10 as well. They may get a separate episode after I wrap up the Sumerians. Enshakashana was a king of Uruk in the later 3rd millennium BC who is named on the Sumerian king list which states his reign to have been 60 years. He was succeeded in Uruk by Lugal Kinsha Dudu, but the authority seems to have passed briefly to Antonum of Lagash. Following this period, Mesopotamia seems to have come under the sway of a Sumerian conqueror from Adab, a city midway between present-day Baghdad and the Persian Gulf. The conqueror was named Lugoan Mundu, who ruled over Ur, Uruk, and Lagash. According to inscriptions, he ruled from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean and up to the Zargos Mountain. His territories also included Elam. However, his empire also fell apart with his death. Then the king list indicates that Mari in Upper Mesopotamia was the next city to hold power over the region. Third Dynasty of Kish, represented solely by Kug Bau, is unique in the fact that she was the only woman named on the king list to reign as a, quote, king. You might remember her from the historical overview episode, as she had been a tavern keeper before overthrowing the power of Mari and becoming monarch. In later centuries, she was worshipped as a minor goddess, particularly at Karchemish, achieving some status in the Hurrian and Hittites periods. In the post-Hittite Phrygian period, she was called Kubali, the great mother of the gods. The city-state of Akshak, too, achieved independence with a line of rulers extending from Puzunira Ishuil, Shushun, the son of Ishuil, before being defeated by the rulers in the 4th dynasty of Kish in the 24th century BC. 
Did you get all that? Don't worry, there's no quiz. The first dynasty of Lagash is dated to the 25th century BC. In Hegel is recorded as the first known ruler of Lagash, being subservient to Uruk. He succeeded Lugolshe Ungur, who was similarly subservient to Mesalem. Following the dominion of Meshanapada of Ur, Urnashe succeeded Lagushe Ungur as the high priest of Lagash and achieved independence, making himself king. He defeated Ur and captured the king of Uma. This king was named Pabogal Tuk. In the ruins of a building attached by him to the temple of Ningershu, terracotta bas reliefs of the king and his sons have been found, as well as onyx plates and carved lion's heads in onyx similar to Egyptian artifacts. One inscription reads that the ships of Dilmun in modern-day Bahrain brought him wood as a tribute from foreign lands, which in our modern mindset probably seems like a very boring tribute. But considering it was recorded for posterity, it must have had some significant meaning. Ernanshi was succeeded by his son, Agrigal, and Agrigal was succeeded by his son, Iantum, who made himself master of the whole of the area of Sumer, together with the cities of Uruk, Ur, Nippur, Akshak, and Larsa. He also annexed the kingdom of Kish. However, it recovered its independence after his death. Many areas in Mesopotamia were made tributaries with a tax of a certain amount of grain being levied upon each person in it, with the tax being paid into the treasury of their temples. Eantum's military campaigns extended beyond the confines of Sumer, as he overran a part of Elam, took the city of Az on the Persian Gulf, and exacted taxes as far away as Mari in present-day eastern Syria. However, many of the areas he conquered were often in revolt as the technologies of communication and warfare had not caught up with their imperialistic desires. During his reign, temples and palaces were repaired or erected at Lagash and elsewhere. The town of Nina was rebuilt, and canals and reservoirs were excavated. Inatum was succeeded by his brother, In-Antum I. During his rule, Uma once again asserted independence under Ur-Luma, who attacked Lagash unsuccessfully. Ur-Luma was replaced by a priest king, Ili, who also attacked Lagash, because, well, it was the thing to do in this time period if you were from Uma. His son and successor, Entemena, restored the prestige of Lagash. Ili of Uma was subdued, and with the help of his ally, Lugu Kanesha Dudu of Uruk, successor to Enshakazuana, and also on the king list. Lua Kanesha Dudu seems to have been the prominent figure at the time, since he also claimed to rule Kish and Ur. A silver vase, thought to have been a possession of his, is on display in the Louvre. A frise of lions devouring ibexes and deer, incised with great artistic skill, runs around the neck of this vase, while the eagle crest of Lagash adorns the globular part. The vase is demonstrative of the skill of the silversmiths of the era. I'll post a photo of it on the podcast Facebook page. A vase of calcite, also dedicated by Intamana, has been found at Nippur. After Intamana, there was a series of weak priest kings in Lagash. The last of these, Urukejina, is best known for his reforms to combat corruption, which are sometimes cited as the first example of a legal code in recorded history. I think this is worthy of a short pause. In my mind, the code itself can provide some insight into the thoughts of the times. Although the actual full text has not been discovered, 
much of its content may be surmised from other references to it that have been found. In this code, he exempted widows and orphans from taxes and required the city to pay funeral expenses, including the ritual food and drink for the journey of the dead into the underworld. Specifically, the dead body was to be left with three jugs of beer and 80 loaves of bread. Also, the legal code decreed that the rich must use silver when purchasing from the poor, and if a poor person does not wish to sell whatever it is the rich person is seeking, the rich man cannot force him to do so. Not all of the code was as generous, though. The code seems to have abolished the former custom of polyandry in his country, instead requiring that if a woman was found to have multiple husbands, she was to be stoned with rocks upon which her crime was written. Some have posited that the code represents, quoting, the first written evidence of the degradation of women. During the 3rd millennium BC, the Sumerians and the Akkadians became very much intermeshed, which even led to widespread bilingualism. In fact, to a certain degree, their cultures began to converge. This is key, since Sumerian is a language of which no related languages are known today. In the end, the Akkadian civilization won out as it gradually replaced Sumerian as the spoken language of Mesopotamia somewhere around the turn of the 3rd and the 2nd millennia BC. But the Sumerian language continued to be used as a sacred, ceremonial, literary, and scientific language in Mesopotamia until the 1st century AD. Now that, to me, is amazing. And I don't know if something similar can be found anywhere else in the Western world. For over 2,000 years, a language remained used in some form or another. The only thing that may come close is that of Latin within certain areas of Christianity. But even that scope is much more limited. Uruk-Hagina, sometime around 2350 BC, was overthrown in his city of Lagash, captured by Lugozagasi, the high priest of Uma. About the same time, Lugozagasi took Uruk and Ur, making Uruk his capital. In a long inscription, engraved on hundreds of stone vases dedicated to Enlil of Nippur, he boasted that his kingdom extended from the lower sea, probably the Persian Gulf, along the Tigris and Euphrates, to the upper sea, probably the Mediterranean. Researchers believe that he was the last ethnically Sumerian king, at least for a while. His empire was overthrown by Sargon of Akkad, marking the beginning of the Akkadian Empire. That's probably just as good a point as any to end this episode. And frankly, with all of those difficult names and the dates, I'm a little worn out, as I'm sure you are too. Join me in two weeks when I dive into the Akkadians. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at thechurchestheworld.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at thechurchestheworld.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase, The Church is the World, as four separate words. Thanks for listening, and have a great two weeks.